Boom, we're live. Scott, thank, or Gundy, thanks for coming up down onto the show, or rather up to. I know you flew all the way from Texas just to be on the podcast and certainly yeah, not spend time in a cabin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, Groot, thanks. Uh, this, uh, introduce yourself a little bit for the folks listening. Sure, my name is uh, Commander Scott Gunderson, uh, retired from the U.S. Navy. Um, born and raised in Superior, Wisconsin. And I left Superior shortly after I graduated, uh, about a month after I graduated, joined the Navy in 87, and spent 27 years on active duty. So what was like life like growing up in the armpit of Wisconsin? Yeah, Superior, you know, we were just talking, I was talking with some of my friends last night about Superior, and, you know, I didn't realize at the time how... I guess poor I was. I mean, I didn't feel like I was poor until I left Superior and, and saw the world. Um, but the thing about Superior, it was safe and it was easy to get around. I remember we rode bikes everywhere. This is back in the early 80s. Didn't have the internet, didn't have cell phones. So we stayed busy. And one of the biggest complaints I had, you know, uh, the circle of friends that I was in, well, we all graduated high school and, and left. And did well, went to college. Uh, my best friend is a, a lawyer. I've got doctors, uh, a lot of people. So we got uh, excellent education in Superior, and then we leave. So the educational system up there is amazing, mm-hmm. but there's there's nothing to offer us as far as high-paying jobs after we, we finish, so we all leave. Unless you want to work in the shipping industry, and even then... Even then, you know, it's all about who you know, and we were never taught in high school any any way to find those jobs or apply for those jobs, or we were never set up in that in that way. And I'm curious. So the, I guess, story that I was told growing up, you know, me, I, I graduated in 07, but it's like you're told you graduate high school and you go to college, you get your four year, yeah, you go get your nine to five, you pay your taxes, then you die. There was no discussion about the trade schools or anything like that was it the same for you it was exactly the same for me i mean i i i don't remember even being talked to about about what i should do after high school other than yeah you should just apply to college um i mean i did have a pretty good mentor in a gentleman named bill renstrand um was a teacher for high school and I did a lot of things that ultimately set myself up for success in the military and in the school that I was accepted to um, I could draw back to the things I did in high school um, that helped me get into was that your plan in high school to go to the military or were you just like I'm gonna go to college and this is the way no this is a true story so I had no idea what I wanted to do and uh, you know I wasn't the greatest high school student but I wasn't I just didn't apply myself. I didn't really have a support group that taught me that, you know, I should really work hard in school. So I was a middle student, but did well in the SAT and things like that. But in uh, 1986, I saw Top Gun. (laughs) And this is the truth. The documentary (laughs) Top Gun. I saw Top Gun and I said, that is what I want to do with my life right there. And then I looked into how I could do it and uh, found out I had to be an officer. I saw the military academies. I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. But to get into the Naval Academy, it's a it's a political as well as a... Um, you need a letter from your senator? Your right? senator, your congressman, and you need to be connected to get those. And you need to be have perfect SATs. You need to be in the top one or two of your class. And, and I didn't fill those... 
I didn't fill that bill. And I talked to uh, I talked to people at the academy and I talked to a recruiter and they said there's another way that you can get to the Naval Academy. And that's to enlist in the Navy and do well for a couple of years and then apply. And then you fall into what's called the Secretary of the Navy. And the Secretary of the Navy at the time gave out like, I don't know, 50 slots a year mm-hmm. to enlisted people to go to the Naval Academy. So ultimately that's how I wound up there. Sure. Well, just want to back things up a sure. little bit. Sure, I'm sorry. I mean, what'd your, no, you're fine. What what did your parents do? And I mean, you're talking to the academy and talking to recruiters. I mean, what did they think, you know, based on their background? Yeah, based on my mom and dad's background, my dad was in the National Guard during the Vietnam era, but wasn't really a strong military person. They were, like a lot of people, um, ignorant about the academies. They didn't know about the academies. And, and even when I was at the Naval Academy, they didn't visit me. They didn't understand what that place was. And I, I had to beg him to come to my graduation. <laughs> Because they're like, well, they don't know it's a four-year degree or whatever. And when they showed up and I take the stage with the president of the United States who hands me my degree, you know, I think it kind of set into him that, mm-hmm. holy cow, this is... Is it more or less like an Ivy League school from what I understand? It's... Uh, my understanding is like this much. It's, <laughs> it, it's, one of the, it's probably one of the most prestigious schools in the world. I mean, governments um, actively bid, you know, to the United States to get a small number of students in from other countries. It's very difficult to get into, and um, it's an excellent school. And one of the great things about like going to an Ivy League or going to the Naval Academy, I think even more the Naval Academy is when you do retire, you do get out of the military, people recognize that right away, that you went to that institution. They know you're going you're to show up for work on time. They know you're going to be drug-free. They know you're going to hard work. And I didn't realize just how hard. strict the academies are. As I was listening to another show with uh, Air Force Academy, Cadet. And anyway, no drinking, no fraternization with underclassmen, yeah. stuff like that. And just the I mean, plus you're working on top of you have a full class load on top of that. Was that accurate for you? It was brutal for me because honestly, I went through three boot camps. I went through enlisted boot camp first. What was that like? It, uh, for me, I went from northern Wisconsin, where on July 4th, I remember the year I went in in 87, it was 55 degrees and foggy. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, I'd never left Superior, I mean, basically my whole 18 years. But I knew I wanted to get out of Superior. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm in Orlando, Florida. And it's <laughs> it's July. <laughs> it's the end of July. Actually, tomorrow is the anniversary of when I entered the July military, Friday. 24th? Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden I'm in, I'm in Orlando and it's, you know, hundred percent humidity, 99 degrees. It was awful <laughs> to the first few weeks to get used to that heat and, uh, you know, standing at attention outside with, with mosquitoes, just, you know, biting you everywhere. It was, <laughs> it was rough. I, I had no idea what was coming. I had no idea what what I was in for. Did you fly down there or did they take the bus down? No, they flew me down there. So I went to Minneapolis. So on my day that I left, Mm -hmm. um, I went down to Minneapolis to the processing station. I think they bussed me down there and then I flew, they did some final medical checks on me and then they flew me down to Orlando, I think with a group of guys. And what's going through your mind or your, were you guys kind of talk about each other, where you came up from or anything that you're trying to 
unpack of what's about to happen? So in the military, that's an interesting thing because whenever we meet somebody for the first time, we ask them where you're from. So that's a very common thing for us to do is to talk. One of the first things we say is, you know, like up up here, one of the first things we say is we ask about the weather. But when military guys meet, uh, the, one of the first things we say is, hey, where are you from? And, you know, right away, I'm, you know, I'm from Superior, Wisconsin. Oh, where's that from? What is that like? You know, we do that with each other constantly. Um, so that is part of the culture is to identify, you know, what are the what part of the country you're from. And, the, and everybody is from everywhere. That's mm-hmm. the cool thing about it. You really get to meet a wide swath of people from different places. I've heard some interesting stories from friends that have people that they had to work with for their boot camp and then in, once they got their orders and stuff like that. And it seems like a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. And for me, uh, the greatest thing that the military gave me is I, I saw as I was approaching graduation from high school, um, just didn't have discipline, wasn't making good decisions. And I saw that I got mixed in with a lot of guys that were kind of in the same position we were lost our parents were going to pay for college we just didn't know what we were going to do and you know that's one of the things that the military um, gave me one of the greatest things it gave me and when you decided to enlist I mean how'd your family and friends react did they try to talk you out of it all or no my family my mom and dad I guess they weren't really happy but they weren't they didn't understand (laughs) what it was about Um, my friends um, which you're you're in my network of friends they're the really were the support uh, network for me and they are the ones when I got time off I would come I would see my family but those are the ones that I stayed with because they're the ones that supported me mm-hmm. uh, throughout my career because you know when you're at the Naval Academy you you don't get you can't have a job the whole four years and you get paid a very low amount of money but you're constantly officers pay for the uniforms we had to pay for computers I never had any money I did not have money to to fly home mm-hmm. Um, and my friends ended up supporting me more than really than my family did. And I've heard nothing but good things about the dress whites from other shows and guests and stuff. <laughs> the you know that's another thing too. The military uniforms, um, whether you're enlisted or officer, um, it gives you a sense of identity, a group identity with with others, and something that you can be proud to wear. And the uniforms are beautiful in the Navy and both the enlisted and the officer side. And on your way down there, though. I, What's going through your mind? Did you are you nervous because you you said you're leaving Superior for the first time in 18 years? Yeah, well, you know, I was really nervous because I really hadn't left Superior. I grew up here, um, and I was going into something that I had no idea because again, I didn't. We had three channels on my TV. <laughs> I didn't have the internet. I had nothing to prepare me for what I was what what I was going into. But I was 18 years old. I was excited to get to get a away from my friends and away from Superior and, and uh, experience something new. So I was I was excited, I mean, nervous at the same time. But uh, to me, it was like, man, this is, this is it right here. This is where my life starts. <laughs> and I imagine, so you flew down to Orlando, I imagine they just bus you over to base from there? And- yeah, so we land and, the, you know, they have it timed, so they get a whole gaggle of people at the same time. And when you land at an airport like that, there's big signs that say, hey, if you're no recruit, go here and wait. And then they gathered us in a, you know, whoever had come in on their flights, they gathered us on a bus and they put us in this in this uh, like holding building called RIF. I forget what it stands for. Um, but anyway, just waiting for us to start boot camp. And for me, they got me there. I got to Orlando about midnight. They put me in a bed 
between midnight and 1 a.m. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. Everyone's being nice to me. And I get in a top rack of a, a bed in a, in a barracks with 200 other people, which that's a weird thing. <laughs> and then around 4 o'clock in the morning, all hell breaks loose, you know? All of a sudden, these people walk in, throwing trash cans, screaming, yelling, you know. It was like... Put the fear of God in you. Put the fear of God in you. I mean, I, for the first week or two, I just had the fear of God in me. And I, you know, it was just a bizarre... uh, It was like a dream. And But you're so fatigued from the beginning. I mean, the first week or two, you're just completely fatigued and the reason for that being is they you know they're just trying to break you down mentally Mm -hmm. and break you of your bad habits and get you used to doing what you're told when you're told so it was a really it was a really crazy crazy time for me did they put sleep deprivation deprivation into that at all you know like like i said i just listened to a show with a with a uh, air force academy guy and he he'd be get back around 11 midnight and they have to be up at 3 34 in the morning pretty much constant for his four years in there in the in the air force academy well yeah, the well, academies are a little different they are okay so i went yeah this was my enlisted boot camp and i went through two boot camps with the academy because i actually went to the prep school first mm-hmm. and then i went to the naval academy you have to go to the prep school because you're enlisted because they gave me that as an option they said you actually that was if i had to do it over again i went and went to the prep school the prep school is way harder than the Naval Academy. So the Naval Academy prep school in Rhode Island was brutal. And the purpose there is to weed people out. When you get to the actual academies, they don't want you. They've spent so much money to get you there that you really have to quit to to get kicked out of the academies. That's what it has to come down to. You just have to quit because they will do everything they can to keep you. But I went through all three boot camps. But uh, going through enlisted boot camp, prepared me yeah what's your day-to-day like going through that uh what they would do in enlisted boot camp it would start it would start early and of course it was in orlando so it was hot and we from the moment we woke up to the moment we went to bed i think we went to bed maybe 10 o'clock normally the first couple weeks there's like a week that's called like hell week where it's almost 24 7 you get a couple hours of sleep at night and um but you didn't get to nap during the day. You were constantly doing stuff. So by the time your head hit that pillow at night, <laughs> You're just you, you, you were gone. You were absolutely gone. So, um, and that's a young man's game. There were a lot of people there maybe in their 30s and late 20s. It's a little bit harder than, but when you're 18 years old and in your peak physical condition, you know, as long as, as long as you can follow orders, um, you know, you're going to do well there. There are some people that raged against the machine and they got weeded out pretty quickly. But, um, you know, I was committed to to that life. And you said you, you know, you had some less than great influences growing up, but you said you had a mentor in high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, did, was there any instructors <clears throat> at boot camp that kind of stood out to you that or that you remember, like, they changed... You know, my, me, if you will. Yeah, both my, so my instructors were Chief Petty Officer Moore and Chief Petty Officer Bobbitt, and Bobbitt was a female. They were both Chief Petty Officers, so they were senior enlisted people, they were E7s. And um, I remember this one, they were really good, and I did something wrong one day. I I went outside, this was like maybe a week or two before I graduated, and, uh, 
I went outside and accidentally forgot to button one of my shirts. And I went and saluted um, another instructor that walked by, and she saw it. And uh, she just raged on me, and I got in trouble. I can't remember what what I got in trouble for. But I walked back to the barracks, and I immediately went to Bobbitt and told her, hey, you know, this is... This is what I did. And she said, what, what do you think you should do? And I just immediately dropped to my face <laughs> and waited for her to count up the push-ups. And then she told me, you know, there from then on, she said, uh, you know, and the thing is, that person told me that you got caught and that you were told to come and tell me. So I knew it. And, you know, I think that's great on you to come back and tell me that that happened. And that had, a, I think, a really profound effect on me, you know, to make sure to do the right thing and it's better to admit guilt to something than to try to cover it up and hide it that's one of the biggest lessons i learned from very very early on is never let your leadership keep them in the dark from something that went wrong that's your fault with the hope with the hope that you're going to get away with it because you're not and you're just (laughs) going to compound it and make it worse and get caught in a lie and that was one of the biggest lessons I learned from that. And after boot camp, you graduate the first boot camp. Did you immediately, like the next day, roll into the next? So I rolled into almost what was another, it was another boot camp. I went to what was called, um, so when I was enlisted, I, I wanted to fly. I said I saw Top Gun. There was only one way I could fly, and that was to be a backseater, an AW, an aviation anti submarine warfare guy. So to do that, I had to go through a school called Aircrew School. So I went from Orlando to Pensacola, and it's a three-month-long school of intense um, exercise, preparing you for aviation, to go through all the aviation uh, um, rigors of aviation. So that was that was almost like another boot camp, except that you know at the end of the day, I had liberty to go in town and stuff like that. So it was a little different, but it was hard, physically harder than boot camp because because now they incorporated swimming. Like you had to pass a mile swim. You had to do helo dunkers like you saw on Top Gun. Um, it's been, I couldn't tell you how long. So, you put you, so what they do is they put you, it's called the helo dunker. You go in a helo, you have goggles on so you can't see. It drops in the water, flips over, and you have to find your way out and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And spin and puke. Um, <laughs> Where they basically, you're the, they rotate you, they're, they're testing um, how you can handle spatial disorientation do you get sick and stuff like that and that's where i found out i don't get i don't get motion sick at all <laughs> but a lot of that stops a lot of people there too so i yeah, went i didn't i used to be able to go on all the roller coasters and, and carnival rides in the world i could eat anything i want and i know 25 i heard the halftime bell go off and that's when things started to deteriorate for me really i can't even the tilt the world i can't do that anymore wow well, i had a lot of people who would get in a plane and they would start taxiing pilots in flight school and they would start puking before the plane even got in the air <laughs> so a lot of that tells me you know it could be it could be um nerves or whatever mm-hmm. but i okay so i went through air crew school and at this time i was thinking to myself how am i going to get to the naval academy so i developed a philosophy when i came out of boot camp that i was going to take the hard jobs that nobody else wanted and what that did for me is when i went to a place no one else wanted all the good people would go to the good place and then I would go with me, you know, maybe the people who weren't as good, but that always, I would always rise to the top in, in those places. Mm-hmm. 
And so I got good evaluations. I went through air crew school, did well. Then I went to my AW school, which was in uh, two different places, training to become an air crewman, did well in those schools and uh, finished at the top of all my schools in the Navy and then started to apply to the Naval Academy. And that's when I got I got accepted two years in. I was out of Moffett Field, California. I was an air crewman for a P3 squadron. Um, so a backseater, I ran equipment in the back of the plane that um, would detect submarines. We dropped sauna buoys in the water, and sure. you can hear submarines and stuff like that. So what's your what's the process look like? Because you're already enlisted and you have to apply to the academy. What's that process look like? So you go through the exact same process as anybody else does, but your nomination is the difference. So I, I had applied to uh, senators. So even when I was enlisted, I still applied to senators and I still applied to congressmen. I don't know if you remember uh, <coughs> Senator Proxmire from Wisconsin long time ago. He gave me a nomination to the Merchant Marine Academy, but he wouldn't. I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And uh, so I would call the academy every single day. So when you apply to the Naval Academy, you're given a representative called the Blue Gold Officer. Mm-hmm. And I would call him every single day. And I think they got sick of me calling them every single day. And one day I got a call and they said, hey, we're going to let you in. Do you want to go to the prep school or do you want to go directly to the academy? And I'd been out of high school for two years and I'm like, well, yeah, prep school sounds good. Um, Did they explain what prep school is or did this like, here's your two options? They explained what their options were. And at the time I knew about the prep school. I didn't realize how hard it was, but... um, I knew about the prep school, and what the prep school is for is is not so much for the enlisted people go there, but it's for the athletes. So, like all the, because the academy is a Division One school, and all the really good jocks for Division One schools, they go into the academy and they can't handle the they can't handle the um, academics. So they send them to the prep school to bring them up. And did you have any athletic background? Did you play sports at all? Yeah, I played school? football. I played football in Superior. Um, and I, I remember correctly, your school kicked our ass. And I grew up in Hudson. Yeah. And when I was in Hudson, 2003 or four to, like I said, graduating in 07, uh, our football program was not good. Cheerleaders scored more than yeah. the football team. Our football team was really good. Um, I, you know, I wasn't the best football player, but I'll tell you, and I was small still, but the reason, you know, I got my butt kicked playing football because I was little at the time. I really had didn't finish puberty until my early twenties. <laughs> but I was about hundred and twenty pounds when I went to went into the Navy. But the football taught me to not quit when as much as I hated football a lot of times because I, I would just get my butt kicked because I was little. I stuck with it and Coach Hoff actually the uh, I owe a lot of gratitude to him for letting me stay on the team even though pff, if, if I wouldn't have been on the team, I would have never been missed. Um, but that really made me stick through a lot of type, tough times at the academy when I would have rather just walked out. But um, um, that really had a big effect on me, too. But going to the prep school, you, you're enrolled there. And I mean, what are you expected as a, a cadet at that point? So at the prep school, now it's changed. But when I went there, you were enlisted still. <clears throat> So the cool thing about when I became an air crewman, I started pulling um, air crew pay. So flight pay, you get extra pay when you fly mm-hmm. in planes. So I was a E3 at the prep school pulling flight pay. So I had a lot of money in the prep school and I could go out at night 
And on the weekends, we, we really couldn't go out at night, but on the weekends, we could do whatever we wanted. We were in Newport, Rhode Island, which is a beautiful place. Did you have place. to get a pass for each weekend? or? Yeah, you would have to get a pass. I can't remember exactly what happened, but you, yeah, you would you would have to request it, and you would have to get a pass. But they were pretty good about it, because we were still enlisted. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't midshipmen. Now it's different. If you go to the prep school, you're a midshipman, and you wear a midshipman uniform. When I was there, you were enlisted. You wore an enlisted uniform, but the rank insignia was a little strange. Um, it was different. And then, um, so that was like a full, that was like a full college year, um, two semesters at the prep school preparing us for the Naval Academy. And the hard thing about the prep school was it was 27 semester hours that you took at a time. And it was calculus, physics, chemistry. It was brutal. It was brutal stuff. And um, I barely got by on 12 credits, and let alone 27. Yeah. I'm serious, 27 credits of of uh, classes five days a week I was class filled every single hour of the day from eight in the morning till five at night and you didn't have the option of not going to so you were there and it was hard stuff is it like a normal college or university where you can pick what classes you're going to take each semester is it year this so the prep school was not second year is this the prep school you were told what you were taking we all took the same thing but the prep school had these things called tracks, low, middle, and high. If you were in the high track, it was it was harder. If you were in the middle, it was just, you know, and low was low. Mm-hmm. The athletes, a lot of times, would have low. And when I came into the prep school, they put me in a high track for calculus. I remember this. And I'd been out of high school for two years, so they were based off my SAT scores. And uh, I hadn't done calculus for a couple years, so I was really struggling and very close to getting kicked out of there. And so I went to one of the officers and, and really, um, you know, pledged to, to get lowered. And they normally would not do it, but just like it was a twist of luck and I got lowered down. And I think that's what helped me get through. Do they have tutor programs? Because just for me to pass basic freshman math, I had to have a tutor through the university. And I was also in a fraternity and because we're kind of a... We're a gentleman's fraternity, so we had majors from all bits in there, and I had two guys help me out, like I said, for basic math, because I can't do math. Well, that's what, uh, you know, I, I was in a place with a lot of smart people. Like, I was one of the very few people who was enlisted, you know, wasn't from Huntington Beach, wasn't the son of a senator, wasn't the son of, son of a congressman. Those were the, a lot of the people that were there, vict- valedictorians. Um and there were a lot of smart people, and, and you know, you're, that's another thing I like about the military is the teamwork aspect of it. So we help. If, if somebody has fallen down and they ask for help or they need help, we help. And it's strongly encouraged, too, because when you get into the academy, when you get into the prep schools, you're put into a little company that you're with those people for. At the Naval Academy, you're with those same people for four years. Mm-hmm. I had the same roommate through prep school all the way through the Naval Academy. We lived with each other for five years. So <laughs> Hopefully you get along. We did. <laughs> but everybody, yeah, and that's what we would do. And the instructors were all military officers at the prep school, and they were always available after school hours. I mean, that you worked, lived, and ate schoolwork at the prep school because um, the cutoff was 80%. If you got anything below 80%, that was considered a failure. And if you got two failures... Um, at any given time, they would they would just kick you out. Attrition was the game at the prep school. They had a certain amount of people right. they wanted to attrite. Because you're going to be going to academy for an officer yes. job. and 
need to be proficient. So I was, yeah, at the prep school, and I was like, oh, hell, if this is the way the academy is going to be about, be like for four years, I'm going to go out of my mind. This is so intense. <laughs> I mean, it was really intense. And uh, so I made it through the prep school. And then, actually, what happened when I left the prep school, I was actually discharged from the Navy in May of 89 for a month. I came back to Superior and hung out with my friends for a month. <laughs> Is that just because your your, con- your enlistment contract was up? Well, they no, because when I graduated the prep school, they were preparing me now to go into the Naval Academy. And so they said, we have to discharge you, or you're going to have to, you have a choice. You can still stay in the Navy, but you're going to be here in Newport f- since you're still in E3. F- the month and a half or two months between when you start the Academy and in here you're going to be mopping floors and doing everything an E3 does in the Navy and so I said I'll take the discharge so I was actually discharged for a month and then um, I had what's the E3 rank in the Navy it is if you're a seaman but when I graduated boot camp because I was going into the aviation community I was an airman so you go in as seaman recruit then there's a seaman apprentice um, I actually was given a uh, meritorious promotion to airman apprentice out of boot camp. So I got early promotion, I think from Bobbitt for that, you know, for being so honest about mm-hmm. my one of the issues I had. But um, and then you're an airman as an E3. So I was an airman, AW airman. So when I graduated my my AW school, I got a rating. So you get this cool little rating on your, that shows what job you are. People can look at, it's the only service really that people can look at your your rank insignia as an enlisted guy and they know exactly what job you do. Because we have all these little Is that still symbols. Do they still do that now? Yeah. I've seen the videos of, in particular, the Navy likes to use the, the aircraft carriers for the recruitment commercials. Yes. And I notice everybody on deck has a different color shirt. Yeah, okay, so on deck, that's for different things. Okay, so Because that, that tells, you know, if someone's wearing purple, they know that's the fueling guys. If someone's wearing uh, red, they know that's the bomb. Those are the ordnance guys. If mm-hmm. someone's wearing white, that's a safety guy. If someone's wearing yellow, it's a safety so guy. that's different than the rank. Yeah, 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 okay. that's not the rank. That's not the rank instruction. instructors. Uh, green is chalk and chainer. You know, that's someone, when you land on the carrier, they're going to come and chain your aircraft. You'll see them disappear down underneath your aircraft. Mm-hmm. And so... So once you get through prep school and you're now in academy from there, I mean, what's did it change much for you in that transition, or is it more or less the kind of the same rigmarole? So when you go to the Naval Academy, that is a total. That is like so the prep school. I did a boot camp before the prep school. It was about to. So I'm like, here I go again, another boot camp for that. <laughs> And uh, that was about um, two months long. And then to go into the Naval Academy, that is a whole year-long boot camp. You had your head shaved off again, everything. So that was the third time I got my head shaved again. And um, that, yeah, was, uh, I think the day was July 3rd, I think is when I entered the Naval Academy. And it was July 4th the next day. And I remember them sitting us all down in the, the yard there in the Academy. We got to watch the fireworks or whatever. <laughs> but that and was... What year would this be? This was 1990. I went into the Naval Academy. So you're 21, 22? I'm 20, 20. So I'm 20. And uh, yeah, I've got juniors who are 19 and 20 my age screaming at me about how I'm, you know, 
stupid and worthless and it's this it's my third time around which that kind of got me in trouble sometimes because i would i would snicker a little bit sometimes but um that was a really tough year and then turning 21 while i was there you know i didn't really get to drink a beer until well into my 21st birthday not until the summer i mean as a plebe you were not even allowed even if you were on liberty uh you were not allowed to drink as a as a plebe period I, I understand there's some the uh, the punishments that come down if you're caught. I mean, you can get kicked out of the academy. you can get kicked out yeah. of the academy. Yeah, so I have I'm for yeah, that is a way to get kicked out of the academy. Um, usually, if you do stupid things, I mean, drinking underage would be really bad. Drinking underage as a plebe would be really bad. Um, drinking as a plebe is bad. There's a there's a demerit system, and in those demerits build up, you can reach a level where you do get kicked out. Um, most of the kick people who got kicked out were for dishonesty. If you got caught in, we had an honor code. If you got caught in any lie, no matter how small that lie was, you, you were gone. I had a lot of people I knew got booted out for what honor was the violations. You said, so you said you're with the same guys for five years. What, what was the attrition rate with your class? So the attrition rate for the prep school, for the, the prep school had like maybe 200 people. I would say the attrition rate was probably 20 to 25%. At the Naval Academy, it's very low, probably less than 5%. So they do everything. And you, you're stupid if you go there and quit that place as far as I'm concerned. Because it, once you get into some place like that, you got to stick it out. And I had... Uh, there were a lot of times when I thought about it, you know, I was just like, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. But we close in on ourselves and we protect each other. And mm-hmm. we we always do that and try to get get each other through through the rough spots. And try to talk people out if they're doing something stupid or... Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And again, this was still pre-internet, pre-cell phone. There wasn't a lot of distractions um, for us. I was talking to... Uh, Kiko, a few weeks ago, there's that, <clears throat> the well, the don't ask, don't tell mentality if you're a veteran. I mean, would so if there's if you notice a guy that's in a bad spot because he's, like, on that verge, I'm just going to quit, I can't do it anymore, do you, uh, do you wait for them to initiate that conversation, or do you guys as a class just like, hey, man, what's going on? What's going through your head? Can we help you through this kind of... Yeah, so at the Naval Academy, we had 36 companies, and they were... We, the company that you went in with as plebes, so my company, I went in company seven, we stayed with each other for four years. So all through those four years, my, I forget how many, maybe 50 of us, maybe 40 of us, we got to know each other like brothers and sisters because we were together for four years. My roommate came with me from Naps and we wound up and somehow wound up in the same company together. Um, so we were together the whole time, but I was with the same forty people for the whole, for the whole um, four years. So you knew if someone was struggling or not struggling or whatever, and we would do whatever we could to help that person stay. Um, and we did that and kept each other for the most part. In my couple, of, you know, I had one roommate quit. Um, he was prior enlisted. He just couldn't deal with it. Um, is it the mental game that your instructors are playing with you, or is it just the workload that's just... So the workload, yeah, so now the workload, now we're talking about like a normal college scenario. Um, you could take as low as 12 hours in a semester, and actually I had front-loaded myself to the point where when I was a senior, 
Um, my last semester, I had I just had one class, and it was the history of China or something <laughs> like that. That met twice a week. So uh, I literally uh, had nothing my last semester, and I had an apartment out in town. So, um, but you know, there were some semesters that were tough there, and we had to. Do, everyone's it's you graduate the BS, so it's an engineering degree. Everybody has to take the same core engineering courses. We had to take electrical engineering. We had to take three levels of calculus. We had to take a lot of really hard classes. Um, but you could space it out more and you could choose what you wanted to take. And there were electives, you know, you, everyone had to speak a foreign language. So we had to take electives and then you could choose what language you wanted to speak. What did you end up choosing? German. <laughs> and I had taken German through high school. Sure. Like that, but it's funny when I go speak German in Germany, they tell me, please don't speak German. We speak English. <laughs> right. Yeah. The classes, the Naval Academy was much easier than the prep school. And I wish I would have just went into the Naval Academy instead of the prep school. The prep school is really painful. And after you graduate, you said you got your diploma handed to you by the President of the United States, who in the 90s had been, is that Clinton? It was Clinton, yeah. Yeah, so the president rotates through each each of the academies um, every four years to include the Coast Guard Academy, I believe. So it was my year that the president came and, and handed us our degrees. And, I, you know, w- whether or not I agreed with his politics, that was pretty cool to have the president right, come. Yeah. yeah, Not a lot of people can say that. No. <laughs> yeah, I got my degree handed to me by the president, and uh, that was pretty cool. I got some cool pictures of after, that. After the academy, you have your engineering degree then? Yes. At point? So, so uh, you said you well, you were a pilot, so then do you have to go to a school for that on top of that? Yeah, so I graduated uh, the Naval Academy, and this was back in 94, and this was the drawdown of the first, it started to be the drawdown for the first war, and so they were actually... It was a time so in the military. You were in the academy then at Pet or boot camp when the Gulf War was going on. Yeah, and I actually caught the tail end. I got out of flight school and I caught the tail end of the first Gulf War. So I got an expeditionary medal for flying in the first Gulf War, which I'll talk about in a second. But I left the academy and my flight school start date. So I left as an ensign. So I was uh, the lowest commission rank as an ensign. It's an 01. 01. So I left as an 01. I wound up. They were going to keep me at the academy, and I would have been like a sailing instructor or whatever, because we were taught, we came out of the academy, we were taught to sail, I could get on a ship, we had our own fleet of uh, PT boats that are big boats, mm-hmm. um, We, I could sail a, a ship into port, sail a ship out of port, could, could sail any sailing vessel, all those things. But there was an opportunity for me to go back down to Pensacola and to be the be in charge of the aircrew school that I was when I was enlisted. So I went down there and I was the OIC of the aircrew school for a year before I started flight school. Which OIC is officer in, in charge. charge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, as an ensign. And I wore aircrew wings. So I got I was already wearing gold aircrew wings because I qualified as an aircrewman flying P threes back when I was enlisted before I went to the prep school. And then um, I, I'd been mentored by an admiral. When I was picked up for the academy, there was an admiral, Admiral Hernandez, he, who was a class of 55. He was in charge of all the P3s for the West Coast, and he had heard that one of his guys had got picked up for the Naval Academy. So he took me up to the squadron, or took me out of my squadron up to his office, and I became kind of like his uh, 
valet or whatever. I would drive him around and the guy would come in in the morning, give me a math problem and say, okay, I want this done by noon. He would give me a calculus problem or whatever. So he kind of took me under his wing and he got me qualified as an air crewman. So I got to wear air crewman wings um, my whole career in addition to pilot wings. So it, and when people would look at my chest and they would see the aircrew wings, they automatically knew I was enlisted um, a Mustang. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a point of pride for me. But I graduated the academy as an ensign. Um, sorry, I get off track here. No, no worries. And uh, we're not on the radio. We can go off as yeah. many tangents as we want. <laughs> and then uh, waited to start flight school in Pensacola, which I did in the spring of 95 is when I started flight school. And what's, then, so what's flight school besides is here's a here's a plane here's a jet this is how you fly it I mean do they load other classes on top of that no so flight school is a full time job so there's three phases to Navy flight school there's primary secondary and advanced so primary everybody does the same thing same as secondary um, you go to Pensacola you have like a hundred flights that you have to complete. They, just the basics, instruments, uh, we call them fan flights, where you actually learn how to take off and land the plane. And you do instruments first, where you have an instructor pilot who does the takeoffs and the landings, and you're in the back, and you're getting used to flying on instruments with what we call a hood over the top of you, so you can't see outside. And, and then uh, you're taught how to land and take off, and then you're allowed to solo the plane, and the, and then you go into more advanced stuff like formation and, and things like that. And it's very, very intense. And every flight is like a, uh, a final exam. How, how nerve-wracking was it for you to do it solo for the first time? It was, uh, it was kind of scary to solo <laughs> a military aircraft for the first time. But um, Which, what, what were you flying for? That? I was flying a T-34 Turbo Mentor. So it's a turbo, turbo uh, prop aircraft. So jet engine with a prop. But we would do this little thing. You could slide. It had a canopy that would slide back. So I took the plane as high as I could go, which was 10,000 feet because I didn't have oxygen at the time. And I'm just flying up there at 10,000 feet, and I slid the, I got to slid the canopy back, and I was just, you know, <laughs> flying around. And it was pretty awesome. But when you do your first solo, it's very controlled. They keep you in a very tight area, and they keep, keep an eye on you and everything. Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. When I did my first solo in the T-34, I was like, yeah, this is real. I can do this on my own. This is cool. <laughs> See, I have no desire to fly a plane or helicopter for that matter. And I used to be, my parents started flying me. My first flight, I was three years old. Yeah, I think three, three or four. We flew out to Lake Tahoe and on uh, oh, Lake Utah. Tahoe. And since then, you know, through up through eighth grade, I had been on 21 different airplanes. And I've flown since then. There was a break after post 9-11, but... I was fine until I was flying back from Cleveland uh, for work, and we hit a storm over the Great Lakes, and we dropped, I think, a 1,000 or 1,200 elevation, wow. and that just makes your heart jump up yeah. in your throat, and then the same pilot, the same flight landing, bounced the rear end of the plane off the tarmac, and since then, I have not been able to fall asleep in a plane. Really? <laughs> It's uh yeah, it can be pretty scary. Um, I I'd never flown any planes. Uh, I'd flown in one commercial flight prior to joining the Navy. Never touched the controls of a plane. Never mm -hmm. been ever flying in a plane. So I didn't really know what it was. You know, flight school was the first time I ever 
had control. And but the Navy is such that within 20 flights, you're soloing a plane and you can see that you can do it. And the beautiful thing about military planes, too, is they're just really responsive, high performance machines that um, um, you, you can get in a lot of trouble with them really quick, but they they react to your input. Not like, you know, I fly Cessnas now all the time as an instructor down in McKinney, Texas. And uh, how slow those are compared to, uh, you know, I tell myself, I don't know how someone can crash a Cessna because the stall speed on this is like 35 <laughs> knots. You know, and I was flying planes, you could stall out on those things at 120, 110, 100, you know, fast. Um, and they were really unforgiving when they would stall. Yeah, the last aircraft I flew would flip over on its back, you know, if you stalled it, but not like a Cessna. Um, but yeah, uh, and I was kind of put through a fast track at flight school also um, because they needed pilots. And so they had selected me as a group of people that they were going to push us two flights a day until we got a down. Uh, it was called a down. So if you fail a flight, you get what's called a pink sheet or a down. Mm -hmm. And that so every the, you technically could be kicked out after one flight fail, depending on how grievous, egregious it was. Um, and I imagine just because a it's human life, b it's some million dollars worth of equipment. Well, right, they don't want people in a plane who are unsure of what they're going to do and could kill themselves and kill others. The big thing is kill others. I mean, they care about you not killing yourself, but they definitely don't want you to kill others. So that's why you, you military pilots, Navy pilots are really cocky because you have to be. That's what they. That's the. That's what they want. Somebody who's very sure of themselves and can back that up. I mean, being cocky is one thing, but being cocky and be able to back it up is another. And so that's kind of the culture that we had. So I finished flight school in, um, so I had to go from Pensacola. So you, in Pensacola, you do like a little uh, basic stuff on the ground. You, you learn about weather, stuff like that. And then you go to Corpus Christi. That's where I did my primary flight training and secondary. Mm -hmm. And like the Naval Academy, Naval Academy, you get to pick your job based on your class rank. When you finish primary, the first phase of flight training, you pick which aircraft you're going to go to based on based on your performance. So when I graduated, there were no tactical jets. You, you have to have a certain grade point average. The way we do our grade point average in, in jets is not ABC. It's based off a of percentage. And I had jet grades, but there were no jet billets available for my graduation days. So there was P3s available and helicopters. I hate helicopters. <laughs> and uh, so I went P3s out of there. So for the then you have to go to a flight school that teaches you the P3 Orion. So I went to Jacksonville, Florida to go through flight school flying the P3. And that took another six months or so to do that and now the p3 so you go from a t-34 which is just a training aircraft to a p3 orion um which is one of the most overpowered aircraft in the military <laughs> um i don't know if you're familiar with the p3 but it's the engines you know what a c-130 is like right? a five-year-old child because yeah i know like this the majority of my my military knowledge has been conversations through the show friends have served and then movies and video games which are super realistic of course <laughs> so p3 orion you know what a c-130 is yes like the cargo aircraft yep 
So the C-130 has the same four engines, exact same Allison engines as the C-130, but it's 50,000 pounds less in weight. So it's very overpowered. One of the fastest prop planes in the world. Um, sea level VNE, so uh, the NATOPS limit for a, for a P-3 is 405 knots at sea level, and the plane will go faster than that. So if you're flying a P-3 for as a career, you're... Is are you doing like troop carrier or no? Cargo? So the P three is a combat aircraft. Um, it had a bomb bay. It was an anti, technically an anti submarine warfare aircraft. The reason why you had to put the torpedoes in a bomb bay is they had to be kept at a certain temperature if they got too cold. Sure. But the P threes, what they use us a lot for also is we could carry missiles on the wings, and when the carriers go through like the Hormos Strait. They can't do flight operations um, because the the carrier has to be on a specific track to be able to launch and recover aircraft. Mm-hmm. And so the P3s would do the arm escorts for the for the carriers. We would have Maverick, Harpoon, uh, you know, regular Mark eighty two steel bombs. Um, the P3 is very versatile. We could put anything in our plane that would go boom. Except we didn't do we didn't do air to air combat with the P3. But um, Sam, you lose maneuverability with a prop versus if somebody's using a jet. Yeah, and plus you have a huge radar cross-section. The props and those things were huge, and uh, you could see us coming a 1,000 miles away. <laughs> but we were a good standoff shit, uh, platform because we could put harpoons on the wings, and that would give us a 70-, 80-mile standoff from ships and stuff like that. And with the, we had a large crew. You could have 10, 11 people in a crew doing different things, and there's a lot of things P3s could do. And P3s, they were still ASW, but when I went into P3s, we started to go to more of a spy-type role. We got a special radar on the plane called an ISAR, an inverse synthetic aperture radar, ISAR, ISAR. And that thing, what it could do is it could, it could you could spray. What we would do is we would go by a, a military coast like Vladivostok, which always has cloud cover over it. You can't see what's going on there. The radar penetrates the cloud cover, can hit the coast, and you have resolution with that radar where you can see every ship, you can see the mass on the ship, you can see everything that's in that in that uh, shipyard. Um, so you know ship movements, troop movements. You can see a lot of those things. Does that translate back as like an actual image or is yes? More? Okay. So it's an image. You could image a port. You could image ships. You could image anything, and, and it looks like a picture, but it's actually radar. And I've seen like the satellite photos of an area. So we also so had an look like we that, had a it? It, it well from a side. So what? Right. So as you're flying sideways to something, it hits it, bounce back, and the computers have an algorithm that piece it together to give you uh, a view of of what is there. So that's mm-hmm. just one of the things that we did. But we also had a really a new thing we call it RTD2. I can't remember the exact designation of it now, but it was a a super high resolution optical camera. So when I went to the first Gulf War, I, we used to fly a track um, in Kuwait along the border. This is before we went in and like got Saddam Hussein because we did that in the second one. Mm-hmm. But we would go along the border and we could stand off 50 miles. But I my the resolution for this camera was so great that I could see I could see individual people in trucks and stuff like that you could see movements of troops movements of cars you could see rocket sites missile sites scud sites and so that's what we would do is we would fly up on this track um, 
when you're flying that, did you ever have to worry about surface to air? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. So all the time you had, um, a lot of times we'd have fighter escorts. Uh, and a lot of times what they would do too is they would put like a RC-135 above us, a big Air Force uh, or AWACS above us um, to protect us and warn us. Um, we had equipment on the plane. You could you can detect missile launches, you know, because the, the missiles would active would turn on active seekers and you can you know that's coming Mm -hmm. um and even just the purely optical ones too we had sensors on the plane too that could pick up uh like missile plumes and things like that so there are yeah there are a few times where it got a little hairy but um uh i did that for the first gulf war and wound up getting a i got a expeditionary medal for that one but i lived uh, we flew out of bahrain I lived in Bahrain and Masir Oman. Mm-hmm. Bahrain would not let us. Bahrain would not let us carry live munitions out of Bahrain, but out of Masir Oman. That's if we were going to carry live uh, ordnance, we would carry that out of Masir, which is a little island off the coast of Oman. And when you're living over there, you're living in the city. You're not put on a ship or a carrier or anything like that. It, no. Well, so P3 people, we. Uh, that's why a lot of people love to go P3 is because we're not shipboard people. <laughs> Um, but I do have a funny story about one time I almost got shanghaied onto a Navy ship because I had to convince them that I was not on the ship. But um, we did, were not ship-based. And so it was a really prime b- billet for a lot of Navy guys because when we flew the P-3 around the Middle East, we would stay in hotels. We got to stay in hotels <laughs> and we got per diem. And it's, you know, it was a pretty good life. It was a, a lot of fun. And um, depending on where we flew, like if we flew out of Bahrain, yeah, we stayed in hotels. And it was in Bahrain. If you've ever been to like Bahrain and Dubai and stuff like that, just gorgeous cities. I mean, beautiful I've heard stories. Cities. I haven't. I haven't left the only two places outside the country I've been to are Mexico and and uh, British Columbia, Vancouver. Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouver's beautiful yeah. too. And I'd like to get over there. Someday. Oh, I was just in Dubai last November. I love that city. <laughs> I love it. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And 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 Manama and Bahrain is beautiful too. That's where the Navy's fifth fleet is mm-hmm. um, based out of is uh, Manama, Bahrain. But before you got deployed over the Middle East, I mean, what was it like when? What's going through your head when you got orders? I mean, were you excited to finally get to go? So when I, job. yeah, when I left Jacksonville, I left as, uh, you leave as a co-pilot, it's called a 3P, so in every P3, there's three pilots, a junior co-pilot, the co-pilot, and the PPC, the patrol plane commander. So when you graduate as a P3 guy, you start out as the bottom guy, and you work through a syllabus when you get to a squadron to become the PPC, the guy in charge of all, all the decision making for the plane. So he's... He is tasked with the control, the safety control of the aircraft, and then you have something higher than the PPC, which is the MC, Mission Commander. Well, you had other officers on the plane who were not pilots. They were NFOs, um, Naval Flight Officers. They could be the MC, but they could not be the PPC, but the PPC could be the MC. It just depended. So if you were the patrol plane commander, the head pilot, you could also be the mission commander, which means you control the tactical maneuvering of that aircraft. Which is one of the you know the benefits of our military is we try to put the decision making down to the lowest denominator. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that makes us such a good military force, is you can have a lieutenant, can not having to constantly get feedback from someone higher up. I can make tactical decisions at my at my level. I'm allowed to do that. So, 
I went from um, I went from Jacksonville to Hawaii was my first station, Barber's Point, with VP9. My wife was nine months pregnant at the time. And as soon as I hit Hawaii, my squadron was on um, deployment. So I was in Hawaii for like two days and I had to go. So my wife, being from Louisiana, never traveled outside the country, whatever. She wound up having a baby by herself in her first child by herself <laughs> in Hawaii at, at Tripler at the, uh, the army facility. She gave any flack for that over the years? No, no. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it's nothing I could do. The squadron needed me. They needed me out there right away. So this was a different time back in the mid to early 90s. You know, they didn't give you time off. My grandfather died when I was in flight school. They wouldn't let me come back, back up to Superior oh. for that. Uh, it's changed now. You know, we've kind of recognized there's a human element that needs to be you need to think about things like that as far as you know the yeah, mental, well, mental well-being wasn't a I've talked to guys and they said the change seemed to happen at 9-11 yes the changing of the guard if you will yeah so back when I went through flight school my grandfather died they, they said we you gotta keep you gotta stay in the track I couldn't and my I'd family get mad at me for that who were very upset with me and I'm like I don't have a choice they said no they denied my request to go home for a funeral so I missed uh, several funerals. Grandfather, grandmother. My dad died. I wasn't. I was deployed. There's, you know, you give up a lot for stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So it was exciting. My first time in a squadron as a pilot was in Oahu, which was beautiful. And there were a lot of times where you were just given a plane for five or six hours to just fly around the islands, and I would go start at. Kauai and work my way to the big island and back and just do touch and goes at each each island and then it was yeah that was, that was a great time and did you have downtime in between there that you could actually go out and like see we did yeah yeah, yeah yeah we sure did we deployed we would do a one one six month deployment and then come back for a year and deploy and, and so I deployed my first tour I think I deployed three three deployments to the Middle East and when did you get orders that you're going to the Middle East so we knew that the squadrons, the squadrons knew that. You knew that when you're in. Hawaii. Yeah. This yeah, 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 yeah. The pre-planning or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I did several deployments to the Middle East and Japan. I actually did a Japanese uh, deployment out of uh, Misawa. So I did two Middle East deployments that time. I mean, I've been, I've lived in the Middle East for. I practically should get my citizenship there, but. <laughs> um, there I lived in Japan and I lived in the Middle East for two. For, for two three deployments so and when you're in the Middle East you know being in Bahrain you said not an active combat zone I mean was it kind of just a normal well, 9 to 5 I'm going to be flying or you know whatever your hours are and then the rest well you would out. fly up into the combat zone though too right. and they considered Bahrain a combat zone so we actually did get combat pay for living there because there are actually uh, there's an insurgency in Bahrain I was actually in a place called the Warbler um, with a that um, got bombed one time when I was in there. It blew out a bunch of the windows and stuff like that. It didn't kill anybody. But they, you know, Bahrain was a part of the Arab Spring, but this was even before the Arab Spring. And I lived in Bahrain when the Arab Spring went down and we got stuck there. Um, But this was pre-Arab Spring and I was in a a place where the windows got blown out, the car bomb one time, so. I imagine that's a little nerve-wracking. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. 
And you said you, you had some hairy moments when you're up in the air. Yeah, a couple missiles, um, missile warnings. There was one that that uh, came out. I could see it coming a long way. I saw it before any of the equipment saw it and just, you know, radically changed my altitude and dove and was able to easily get out of there. Get out of there, shake it. Yeah. Do you have countermeasures on a piece? We do. So, because yeah. I think everybody has. To yeah. The so, AC-130, the so immediately AC-130. when that happened, immediately when, when one of them came up and it, it was an old Russian one, I can't remember which one it was. Um, we have chair and, and uh, flare and chaff. You, there's a big red button in the flight station. You push, and the computer automatically goes through a, an algorithm that shoots out a whole bunch of chaff and flare. And yeah, so we would do. I had no problem shooting off every chaff and flare I had when I saw a <laughs> missile. So, and did you, you know, pre cell phone, pre internet, or at least social media at the time? Did you have a chance to at least? reach back home talk to friends family yeah so they miss funerals and such but yeah so the government had these phones that they would give us access to that um you know you would get 10 minutes or 15 minutes a day where you could call call anyone back in the united states so we it was a phone though and we would all have to wait for it or sign up for it i can't remember exactly how what wait in line for it but it was like you get 10 minutes to use it and in bahrain too you could pay it was back when you had to pay for long distance. <laughs> right, one eight hundred collect. <laughs> and I tell you what, even as an officer, you don't get paid all that much money, and so it was very expensive. You know, if you if you made a pay call back to the United States from the Middle East, it was like ten dollars a minute or some craziness. Would you try to coordinate phone calls back home? Yeah, obviously, there's the time change there, but then do you have like a designated okay? Yeah, you do. And that's the funny thing is I was, you know, thinking about pre-cell phone. We did a lot of that. You would coordinate ahead a lot of times. So my wife knew that I would be calling her back in three days at between this time and this time. So be home. Try to be home. And we sent letters to each other, too. That was there was mail. Yeah. And I think. I noticed the, like, USO really started up in Vietnam. You had the tours between comedians, Bob Hope, for example, and such. And it really blew up. I noticed with my friends when they started going overseas, did you have the opportunity to go out and see any So this is funny. Yeah, I came back from a flight. I was flying out of Misawa, and the flights out of Misawa are for <laughs> North Korea. The flights out of Kadena are for China. We would do those like kind of spy missions that I was talking about with the radar and stuff like that. I flew home one time into Misawa. It was like nine o'clock at night, snowing, and I land and they're like, "Hey, there's this band called Loverboy in the in the in the uh, in the hangar, and no one's in there. And you guys are the only ones, the only Navy guys that that are available. We need you to guys to go. And I just flown a twelve hour flight. All I wanted was a beer. <laughs> I didn't want to go listen to Loverboy, but they're like, you guys got to go because the span's all set up. There's nobody in there. And uh, so I get off the plane. I do my post flight, grab my crew. There's nine of us. We go to the hangar and we got a concert by Loverboy. (laughs) (laughs) So that was pretty funny. How long were you overseas or on active duty, if you will? Uh, like how much time I spent overseas. So I was active duty 27 years. I probably spent... On and off deployments then? On and off, like constantly. And then I lived in Bahrain for two years. I was uh, a staff officer for General Mattis 
in Bahrain for two years. So my family was with me. My kids were with me. I just read his book, Call Sign Chaos, and he talks about I, his time over there. Yeah, he remember I ran into him in the airport the other day, like <laughs> like a couple of months ago with my wife. And I was I like, gave you the letter. General Mattis. <laughs> he got, I go, you remember him? He's like, Scooter. And I go, I want to put a couple cubes in there, please? We're going to put the ice. It's going to be loud for a bit. we got to put the ice in. Oh, that, that's fine. Where's yeah. the ice at? The extra ice. There's no extra ice. Yeah, we put in the we put in the keg. We need, we need ice for the cooler for the the, the coil. There's a shovel. We'll just pull the yeah. Just. Are you on pause or something? No, you're good. It's informal. No, I tried to like get their attention before I just stopped right in the middle of a yeah, that's conversation. Fine. That's where we put the extra <coughs> ice. But he remembered you. At the yeah, now you got to meet my wife. He's like, Scooter, how you doing? I'm like, it's. <laughs> he was just standing in the airport in uh, um, Atlanta. I was like, holy crap, Um I was a, and then, uh, you know, I did a, I did a full ground combat tour in Iraq, too, so I spent a year there, too. So you weren't piloting? In- I was not, so that was the period, so there was also a jet transition for me. Oh, here. Sorry about that, folks, we're back, we just lost battery power there, had to switch out. But Scott, you're just talking about your ground deployment in mm-hmm. Iraq, so what, what were you doing Okay, time. so I just come off a deployment, and I'd done a I transitioned to jets, and then I went back to P threes, and then I was doing another jet tour, and I came back to Kingsville, Texas, to be an instructor. My second tour as an instructor in the in the T forty five Goshawk, which is a modified BAE Hawk, but it's got a carrier is carrierized, so you can land it on the aircraft mm-hmm. carrier. Is that the ones that can go vertical up and down? No, they're no, not vertical. Okay, that's Harrier? That's Harrier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, these are regular carrier aircraft. So, But we teach guys how to land on the aircraft carrier and stuff with the Goshawks. And um, I don't know why we have a British jet. I was told that <laughs> Britain was going to buy a bunch of our Ohio class, and we were so we bought the Hawks. Well, they reneged on the Ohios, and then we were stuck with all these BAE Hawks, and we, could, we couldn't figure out what to do with them, and we decided... That we would use them in the navy. So, <laughs> single engine jet. You're, as a, this is, you're on a jet now. This is 2001. So this is after 9/11 okay. when I went to Iraq. So, if, but there's a, there's stuff that happened between my first tour and Iraq. I I transitioned to F-18s. Went through flight school for the jets because they needed jet. They, now they needed jet pilots, and they. How much of a learning curve is that going from P three to a jet? It's not. It's not because so I go through flight school as a jet guy. I already know how to fly the plane. I know how to fly well. I mean, it's a different type of flying. So P three, you fly airspeeds, jets. The cool thing about a tactical jet is, no matter how you move the throttle, the attitude of the aircraft always stays the same. So in a P3, if you move the throttles, the nose would pitch up and mm-hmm. down and up. In a jet, if you don't touch the stick and you just move the throttle, it always stays at the same, we call it angle of attack. And so when you're landing on an aircraft carrier, you're not flying airspeeds, you're always flying angle of attack because you want the aircraft to be perfectly positioned for that hook to touch down and catch the wire. Sure. So it's a different way of flying, but it wasn't a difficult thing to figure out. Um, I just come off a P3 deployment, so I'd done jets. I, I was a, a weird hybrid in the Navy. I was a, the only P3 guy who is a qualified aircraft carrier pilot. I'd qualified, 
landing. And so I would do a P3 tour and then I would do a jet tour. And so I came back from my second jet tour and I show up and they had, you know, this is when the Iraq war was getting pretty wound up 2006 timeframe. Um, the, you know, they had the battle of Fallujah and stuff raging on and, and the Marine Corps did not have enough officers. So they needed officers and they needed officers in the middle ranks. I was a Lieutenant commander at the time and the CEO, my wing commander said, Hey, we have these orders. We have to send someone to Iraq. You're the newest guy. I'm sorry, dude. I got to send you to Iraq or no, he didn't say that. He said, I have these orders. They're from the Marine Corps. It was called an IA, independent, uh, I forget what the A stand for, assignment. These things called IAs were showing up now where they were taking officers and enlisted folks and just doing something with them that was completely different than what they were trained for, but they didn't have enough people to fight the war. Mm -hmm. My order said Camp Lejeune and the Marine Corps headquarters in Washington, D.C. for a year, and my CEO was like, it's not a big deal. I think you're just going to be in D.C. supporting the Marine Corps. Um, but you have to show up in Camp Lejeune first. So I hadn't even got my family to Kingsville yet. They were still in Jacksonville getting ready to move. And I went to Camp Lejeune. So I show up with my orders. The detailers couldn't tell me. They didn't know exactly what it was until I checked in with the Marine Corps. So I get to Camp Lejeune. And I'm like, hey, I'm Lieutenant Commander Gunderson. I'm here uh, I, you know, for whatever training you guys are supposed to give me for um, being in D.C. for the ring, you know, for this IA, and they're like, D.C., you're going to Fallujah. <laughs> I'm like, what? They're like, you're going to Fallujah. And so they took me, and I actually went through like a basic officer, or the, uh, the Marine Corps has a school called the Basic School for their officers, where they go through infantry school. So they took me for six months and put me through the Basic School, essentially, to learn to do all those things that a Marine Corps officer does because I got assigned to second math in Fallujah. So I went through this, this, it was a syllabus that was just designed for me. Learn, you know, learn how to shoot guns, throw grenades, had me running around doing all the weapon systems that, a, that a, uh, an infantry officer would, would use in the Marine Corps. So I went to Fallujah or I did that in Camp Lejeune, and then I went to Fallujah for a ground tour in Fallujah. What was life like over there for you, I imagine? That's got to be just a head fuck, if you will. Oh, it was crazy. So when you first get there, you're just packed in like lemmings, irregardless of rank. You know, I remember... Taking this is when Fallujah is still just a complete shit show. Shit show, yeah. yeah. So I show up in, in, they fly me over with a bunch of military guys on a, on a charter. I get into Camp Virginia, I believe it was, in Kuwait. I'm there for a night, and then they pack us all into a C-130, and we're in full battle rattle, full battle gear, <laughs> just crammed onto a C-130 in these little jump seats. And I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who's in full battle rattle. It's 110 degrees. <laughs> In the back of a C-130, and I'm 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 trying to get comfortable with all this armor on me, and I can't. It was it was miserable. I'm just sweating through my clothes. I can't even imagine. So we do a C-130 from um, Kuwait to a waypoint. I can't remember exactly where I flew to in Iraq. They get me off the C-130, and then they put me into Chinook 
to get me to Fallujah. And within five minutes of getting up in the air in that Chinook, the helicopter starts taking fire. And so I'm in a seat next to a dude who's got a minigun. He goes off and all the hot brass is flying through the air and into my uh, into my in your, my armor. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to get it brushed out of my armor. And this helicopter is taking... Uh, it's taking fire at the same time. You know, I can feel the bullets going through the fuselage right around me. And uh, it's in the middle of the night. I'm, I'm, I can't see. And uh, I hate helicopters. And then that... <laughs> That that enforced uh, you know my dislike for helicopters even more, and because Chinooks are so small and maneuverable, I'm sure that was just a joyous ride. Hey, well, they're <laughs> they're big targets. Because that's what about the, the biggest helicopter? A yellow like school bus. They're bigger. Yeah, they're huge. It's yeah. like a school bus with dual rotors on it. <clears throat> no, thank you. Yeah, big planes. <clears throat> yeah, big planes. So that was my introduction into coming into Iraq is is being on one of those things, and I'm like, God, I'm gonna die in a helicopter. It's one of the things I dislike the most. How long were you? How long were you on a ground mission in Iraq? Uh, I think it was like eight months or so. Um, I got into Fallujah, and then my job was uh, I was the infrastructure officer for Ambar Province. So in Ambar Province, there's the only oil refinery for the entire country is called Beji Oil Refinery. It's in the northern part of the country. And heavily fortified, heavily protected, because that's where all the oil is is turned into refined petroleum products for the country. And the insurgency had blown all the pipelines, all the railroads, and the only way to get refined oil to Anbar province was through convoys. So my job was to, I would, I was in charge of the convoys that would come down from Beijing with oil, uh, gasoline and stuff. But then I was also charged with fixing all the bridges that got blown up, fixing all of the electrical infrastructure, uh, the railroads, and the pipelines. So you're more in a supervisor role at that point? Um, it kind of. What, what would happen is if something would get destroyed like a bridge, they would, I would fly in in a Blackhawk with a bunch of Marines um, who would secure the area, and then I would see uh, what was wrong. You know, And the funny thing is, I, I'm not a civil engineer, but I... You know, for instance, there was this one bridge, the Hit Bridge. I fly up there, and it had been blown, big holes blown in it, and um, I was told to fix it. So I was actually on Google trying to figure out the MLG rating for the bridge to figure out how thick the the the, the plate of steel needed to be to go over the holes. And so, a lot of times when I had to fix a bridge like that, I would just be on Google checking to see how what what tonnage can that bridge normally hold and then calculating how thick the steel would need to be to go over the holes to fix that. A Navy pilot, a P-3 pilot. <laughs> Fixing bridges. I'm, and then, uh, so... See, that engineer, engineering degree came in handy. Well, it's good, like a general. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a civic engineer. But the one thing that I did get to do before I left there was I, I managed to get the railroad connected between... Uh, Beji and Anbar and Fallujah, but you know one of the one of the frustrating things about that is just when you get good at your job, like anything in the military, when you're at the top of your game, all of a sudden you get shifted out, and a new person that comes in doesn't know what they're doing. And you know, I I got the railroad fixed so that they could finally bring trains down to Fallujah, and as soon as I left, 
they blew it all up again. So, is there a transition period with whoever's replacing you so you can kind of communicate? This is what I've done. This is how we're doing it. So on and so forth. Was it just? Yeah, the, for me there was. I got a couple of days with the guy I replaced, and then. Uh, but like most people, he just wanted to get the hell out of there as fast as he could. So, it, it was dependent on me. He was required to stay there as long as I felt that I needed him there, and he was just like, "Dude, I got to get out of here." So I just let him. <laughs> I let him get out, and when I left, um, they were looking at extending me there for another six months, and uh, I was like, oh, God, I've been there for eight months. No days off, no beer, nothing. Just constant, constant uh, craziness, and then um, I was like, I'm I'm like, no, I I don't want to extend here. You guys need to figure it out. You need to bring somebody else in. I just made commander at the time too, and I was ready to get out of there. So imagine this is a squaring down on you mentally, not let alone physically. You get a wife and kid back home. Yeah, and my wife was pretty supportive, and my friends were pretty supportive. I mean, I was talking to you know all Our my gracious hosts joined us here at the table. <laughs> the the hard part is when you do something and you do it day in and day out every day, no time out, no time off, no time to do anything, no time to have any time to yourself, all the things that you take for granted, having clean clothes, you know, not being completely sunburned. You know, when I came back from Iraq, I was in a state of total dehydration that whole time. I'd, I had kidney stones when I came back. Um, you know how painful those suckers are. Yeah. They're awful. Um, you just really, it was miserable, constant misery. I mean, the bugs, the the heat, the yeah. I've seen pictures of camel spiders, and uh, fuck that. <laughs> yeah, oh, camel spiders. I had a tiny little spider come out behind my my visor on my car the other day that sent me into full Chris Part Farley panic. Well, that's because you're a pussy. <laughs> and thankfully, there's a cop behind me that was kind enough to chase me down the as I hit the shoulder doing sixty. Well, and also you're playing you're playing law a, a law of averages too. I mean, when you're constantly flying around in Blackhawks and you're constantly driving around in convoys, eventually that's going to catch up to you. You know, you you do your time and you're ready to get out of there because it, eventually it's going to catch up to you. So that was one of the big things for me too. At the time, I had four kids. Blackhawks never go down. <laughs> so, after after being ground on the ground in Iraq, did they put you back up as a pilot at all? Yeah, so I came back from Iraq, and I went back to find T-45s. So that's when you guys came down for my L-5 ceremony, yeah. I went back to finish my second flight tour. As an instructor pilot, so I went to back to Kingsville and did a flight tour. So I did out of that. I got a. I got. A cool thing on my uniform. I get to wear. I have a the Marine Corps anchor of globe anchor and globe on my uh, Iraqi service medal, service for the Marine Corps. So. Really, the only people in the Navy who get to wear a, a Marine Corps symbol on the uniforms are the medics. So, one of the few people that got to have a fleet, fleet Marine Force insignia on my uniform. So, that was pretty cool. Uh, came back from Iraq, went, did another flight tour, and uh, finished that up, and then got sent to Bahrain with my family. I'd put on commander, and part of the part of wearing the rank of command is you have to do uh, 
you have to go back and do a sea tour. And my choices were to go on an aircraft carrier, which I did do an aircraft carrier tour for two years on the Kennedy as a TAO. Um, I didn't want to go back on an aircraft carrier, so they gave me the option of going back to the Middle East. And uh, was a, then I became a staff officer for General Mattis in Bahrain. With, and my family was there when the, the whole Iraqi Spring thing. Which we touch base off air. Uh, you actually just ran into General Mattis at the airport. Yeah. I ran into him randomly at an airport when my wife got to meet him. So. Which I'm, I'm, as a history major, I'm kind of jealous. So I ran into him. Well, I mean, I worked for him, so I ran into him mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. He's pretty cool. So after, so when you were back and doing a flight tour, were you doing just like you were on the F, uh, the P3s, you were doing the radar stuff, or are you flying combat missions at that point? Which, uh, when I came back for the flight tour, I was instructing. So I did it, I was saying I took an F-18 transition, um, but as it, because of my experience when I went and went through flight school and, you know, I'd flown a whole tour before, so I did really well. And so they asked me if I would just stay as an instructor. Because the problem is, if I would have switched nine before nine eleven, everybody, every officer in the Navy was going to be the CEO of a squadron, and they, the F eighteen people wanted me to come over because they didn't have enough commanding officers for the squadrons. Then nine eleven happened, all the airlines went kaput, and all the pilots in the Navy stayed in. So now all of a sudden, they're heavy on pilots. And um, if I would have then, if I would have taken the F-18 transition, I would have never made the rank of commander. I would have been stuck at lieutenant commander. And for me to make the rank of commander, I had commander is what on the O scale? It's an O five. Okay. So that's the most junior senior officer in the Navy. The O five is it's like in enlisted ranks. To it's the equivalent of becoming like an E seven, becoming an O five. That's the that's the major hurdle mm-hmm. is the O five rank. And for me to make 05, I had to go back and do a couple of P3 tours. And so I was actually, you're ranked within your community, you're selected within your community. So I was actually chosen as an 05 as a P3 guy and, and not as a jet guy. But the jet guys kept wanting me back because of my flight experience. And uh, so I kept doing jet tours. You, you get a sea tour and a shore tour. It's kind of like an elective. When you do a sea tour, they throw you a bone and let you do an elective, let you do something fun. And so the jet guys, I wouldn't normally get to select jets, but the jet guys would pull me through the P3 gauntlet, and they would pull me to Kingsville to instruct. How long were you doing that? I did three jet tours of about three years apiece. So I was a P3 flight instructor and a jet flight instructor for 20 years at least. And, and at that point, is that when you made the retirement? So my third tour, when I came back from Bahrain, I had one more tour. I came back to do jets, and I hit the 27-year mark, and I was approaching 45. And I'd seen a lot of people get out at the – so if I would have put on captain, if I would have taken the next rank, I would have had to have gone to an aircraft carrier again. And then you're looking at – north of 50 and so I have a lot of friends now who are getting out at 50 51 and they're having trouble getting hired because no one wants to hire a 52 year old person even mm-hmm. though they're military and stuff like that so I made a conscious get, as a well I work in corporate America and as a 52 year old coming in I'm gonna get 10 12 13 years out of it maybe right if I hire the college grad hey look there's 30 years and I can pay them a hell of a lot less 
Yeah. So, well, and, and I came out before the age of 45 and I recognized that that's, that's probably about the max age you want to be to get in the corporate world and got hired right away. I had thought about, so I also hold an airline transport pilot license and being an airline pilot. And now I'm glad I didn't do it because you see what's happening now. Right. Yeah. As we record this, we're post lockdown, at least for Wisconsin, but we're still... I'd say in the thick of COVID-19. Well, all my friends who fly for the airlines who flew with me were making fun of me for not going to the airlines. And now they're calling me to see if they can get a job from me. <laughs> so, but my, I still fly and my company does pay me, they pay me a, a bonus each year for, for being an airline pilot because they don't, at the time when they gave this to me, they didn't want me to go to the airlines. So they decided to pay me extra money to, to recognize that I'm an airline pilot and they don't want me to leave. So making that transition from military into the civilian corporate world i mean was that difficult it is difficult it was difficult for me because you go from somebody who listens to what you say and uh pays attention to what you want and your needs to all of a sudden no one giving a rat's ass about how you feel or what you want to do yeah (laughs) that's a hard thing that's a hard and even you know in the enlisted folks too who retire you know those senior enlisted a lot of times I have you know I'm more afraid of a E8 or an E9 than I am an admiral and then an 07 um, and those guys go through the same what's thing a, too what's the adage uh, I think it was in uh, I think it was in Band of Brothers he goes don't salute me I still work for my paycheck yeah well, <laughs> well no they'll say don't salute me my, my parents were married or something like that yeah um it's hard for the enlisted side and the officer side when you you reach a pinnacle in your career and you, you have a lot of uh, control and a lot of sway and then all of a sudden you don't and no one no one cares mm-hmm. no one gives a rat's ass that's a hard thing initially to deal with yeah and I'm just curious uh, you know PTSD comes across in many forms you know obviously Hollywood portrays it as the guy who's drinking whiskey and having nightmares. But I've had a few episodes where we talk about it's the adrenaline rush. You know, they come home and they want to go 120 miles an hour in their car, their motorcycle, or whatever. Being a fighter pilot, I imagine that's a huge adrenaline dump for you, flying Mach whatever. Did you, was that hard for you to kind of process through because you're not doing that? I mean, if you're a commercial airplane pilot, yeah, there's yeah. some, I imagine. You know, no, it's funny you say that because, yeah, it, it kind of left me depressed. And, and I know I have a friend who just got out, who's a pilot also. And y- you, your brain is constantly at a high level. It's constantly, you are constantly want to do stuff and you're no longer stimulated like that. And so, you know, I think initially we struggle with that and then you turn to like, you know, maybe some pharmaceuticals to, to help out a little bit. But I have friends who, you know, turn to like THC, drinking, stuff like that. And I've had my issues too, but I've stayed away from, from hardcore drugs like that. But I see people um, that happens to them, but that's true. That's actually, and PTSD may not come from, come from actual combat experience. I mean, I've had that. I don't think it's, it was a factor for me, but also just a lot of times, one of the hardest tours for me was in Bahrain as an 05, was just the mental abuse from that. They would actually give us medication because we would go into this thing called the tank where Hillary Clinton, you know, if the Secretary of State came through or a bunch of admirals, you would have to brief them and they would only let 05s brief high level officials. And um, 
I forget the name of the medicine they'd give us. It was Rockstar Medicine um, that would make it so that you were unemotional. So before I would give a brief, I would take um, this medicine, and you would get you would get screamed at, yelled at, told you suck, you're wrong, whatever, and you could not have any emotion. You could not talk back. That was a tough thing to deal Preview with. Preview to corporate America. <laughs> The Bahrain tour in Fifth Fleet, that was a brutal tour. Yeah, that was actually kind of my hardest, hardest tour, getting used to that, having, you know, sitting down with a bunch of 08s and 09s and just getting freaking reamed out. Not because you were the only person there for them to take a, take it right, out. Not on. necessarily because it was your fault. It just it wasn't my fault. You're just, in front of me and I'm... I was a, I'm a spokesman for Fifth Fleet. And they would come in and didn't like what I was telling them. And, and that happened to all of us. And a lot of us, we had to take uh, these uh, medications to calm us down so that we wouldn't break down. D- did the military at least wean you off of that after that? Or is it like I was on Ritalin and I decided, I'm going to stop and boom, that was it. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't bad like Ritalin. It was, I forget the name of the medicine that they... Because when I went to the doctor, you know, after the first couple of times of doing that, I went to the doctor and said, I don't know if I can handle this. I want to punch these guys right in the face. And then he said, here, take this. This is what people take. Um, rock stars take it before they go on stage. And um, it's not like a narcotic. It's not like a scheduled drug or anything like that. No, I forget. It's called heroin. No Stray Left Behind does not promote the use of illegal drugs, for the record. Now, what it was was a beta blocker. It was like a, it reduces your heart rate. Um, so, you know, the, if you get up and speak, so I would have to get up and the tank would be filled with 100, 150 people and a bunch of admirals. You know, you get up and speak in that environment, you get butterflies and stuff like that. Yeah, this, would, this would lower your heart rate. And, and yeah, so that's one of the ways um, they would try to help us with stuff like that. But Coming home, I mean, did you talk to anybody like friends family or seek professional help to just try to unpack all that or well, the military forces yeah the trans- military kind of forces the professional help on you too especially the combat the combat veterans so try to and is it a, a form of like i mean i've seen uh, group classes where they yeah they're really 20. so what they do is the military the va was assigned basically a caseworker to me who who is constantly Checking in with me, making sure that I'm going to appointments, making sure that resources are available. The VA actually has been really great. Um, you hear the horror stories of the VA. I mean, the VA facilities are Especially not... If, as of recent, I've noticed it. Yeah. And people that I know personally that I grew up with, and they have less than good things to say about the VA. Grant, not this department, other other issues you know like i had to schedule a dentist appointment it was nine months out kind of deal well dental is another thing yeah, yeah i don't right. get yeah they i understand the, the va is a big umbrella over a lot of things but. yeah but they did you know uh as a retiree i get my dental with my retirement but the va and one shot thing my initial out uh when i first got out of the military the va saw me and saw i had a couple of teeth that needed fix and they said this is a one-time shot. We'll fix them for free for you, or we'll pay your dentist to fix them. So they gave my my dentist was happy as hell because he got a five thousand dollar check for chain doing two crowns in my teeth. <laughs> I remember telling my dentist, I go, hey, you know the VA said they'll do my crowns on my teeth, but they said they'll pay you five thousand dollars to do them. He's like, hell yeah, do you want to do it now? <laughs> so 
I've, I've yeah. had good experiences with the VA so far. Getting out of the military and transitioning into, you know, you're in, in the aviation world now. Yes. Still, were you able to use what you learned in the military to translate in that career or, you know, so absolutely, or the yes, absolutely. There's a reason I was hired. Um, the company I work for, it sells to the aerospace market, but has never sold to the military. It's a Japanese company, so they're always they've been kind of adverse to getting into the military for obvious reasons. But they recognize that they are missing out on a huge market, so they hired me because of my military experience as a retired Navy officer. I can get on any military base. Uh, I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people in the airlines and industry. So that's why they hired me, and I kind of ease them into the market because they don't know. They don't know uh, the bow from the stern of a ship. You know, they don't know any. And I've, you know, I was stationed on a ship for two years. I was stationed. I was a pilot. I have ground combat experience. I cover all the bases, air, land, and sea. So, Do you find you can get your foot in the door just because you can say, I'm retired Navy pilot? Yeah, so there's a whole network of military officers in the industry, and they're not, a lot of these companies like Lockheed um, or uh, Sikorsky, they're not going to let just some dude come in and see them. But they, I graduated a, Ivy League school, and I have this piece of paper that says I know everything. They they will not let those people in. But I can normally say, hey, uh, you know, I'm retired Commander Gunderson. I flew such and such. I think we have something that you guys will like, and they always let me in. Was it an easy transition getting into that? Because I'm in sales, too. Yeah. And the big challenge I have is finding people not buying my product. And it's my job to go out and find those people and be like, hey, you don't need to be stop stop being friends with these guys, but I want to be your friend too. Or was it easier for you because you had that experience already? I think it was. And uh, a lot of times I'll run into people who are in charge of programs. Like I've run into the guy at Lockheed who's in charge of the P3 program. He's never seen a P3. And I'm like, I can take you and show you a P3 in Whidbey Island if you want. He's like, well, would you do that? I'm like, yeah, I spent a full year of my life in a P3. <laughs> so that can, that can be easy too. And the way the, the way the whole community is, is it's a, also kind of a, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. You know, you help me with this project and I get you in to see these people and I know you know these people, you help me get in to see those people. So we do that for each other a lot too. Do you still keep in touch with the guys that you serve with? Oh yeah, I mean, all of my academy, it's like a brotherhood. We call it the large, the world's largest fraternity. I mean, it's not really a fraternity, but... And then all my airline pals, you know, all the pilots I flew with uh, were all pretty tight. I know in the, in the civilian world, you know, I'm, I've blocked everyone that has tried to invite me to my high school reunion, but I mean, do you do anything like that? You know, the, let's get together and have a beer or two dozen yeah well like uh, for instance uh, we have tailhook I don't know if you've ever heard of tailhook mm. uh, tailhook in September where all the carrier aviators get together once a year um, we're doing that in Reno in September it just got canceled a couple of days ago but we all get all the carrier aviators get together and when I go there I see all kinds of guys that I flew with and uh, I have students you know I um, as I became a senior flight instructor as my friends know this too they would give me a lot of the foreign students who were a little bit harder, didn't speak English very well, and didn't were having a harder time in the flight program. And so I would help them get through it. And so I have 
students of mine now who are generals in India or whatever mm-hmm. and who still keep in touch with me and say, hey, when you come to India, you can hang out with me here. And um, I almost brought a Saudi prince down here to the... <laughs> To the uh, cabin the, one the, time. They decided at the, the last minute that probably wasn't a good idea. Prestigious uh, <laughs> sweaty sausage. He was so excited, but I think he got back to his State Department and said, hey, I'm going to Wisconsin with Commander Gunderson, and we're going to go and have some fun in a cabin. And I think the State Department shut that down. <laughs> Drink beer and fart up a cabin. <laughs> well, I warned these guys. I go, hey, I'm bringing a Saudi prince. I remember. Down. Yeah, you're like... I feel like that should be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. I got to talk to uh, Elmer, uh, Elmer Wishard, a few weeks ago. And, you know, he he trained 200 students on uh, flight instruction out of Bruce Airport. And the day that we got there, I think it was the day before we talked to him, he got a letter from one of his former students said, hey, thank you for doing this, blah, blah, blah. I happen to now work with one of your other former students. And, and that's kind of cool to, yeah, and past my past, seems very tight. Yeah, my past flight instructors, I've run into them too, and, and thanked them for teaching me. I, I keep up with them also, and I have a lot of students who still keep in touch with me. And uh, I was one of those guys that they, because I wasn't a pure jet guy, I didn't, I didn't really have the badass jet attitude as an instructor. So I think I was a little more enjoyable to fly with because I didn't like giving. There was usually not a reason for me to give a down like a normal jet guy would because I always thought that there was, if a student's having a problem, I can teach them how to how to fix that problem. And I tried my, I gave very few downs. I would only give a down if I was like, if I was not in this plane with this guy, I've killed himself, you know. So they would a lot of times give me to problem students, number one, because they knew I could bring them up to par but they also knew that I wasn't going to wash them out of the flight program by getting frustrated and just washing them out so and you said you know they're being cocky but able to back that up yeah is a thing within the community do you is there a lot of pushback as an instructor with a student because I you know in the corporate world there's a lot of that for me you know I'll be training in a 19 20 21 year old who thinks they know everything there is about life and it's like well you don't but that's okay Dude, I saw it recently when I first started going out. You know, when we when we when I first went through flight school, flight instructor was God. Okay, even if the flight instructor said something that you knew was wrong, you didn't talk back to him. You know, you just kind of snickered and moved on. These kids today, if you tell them you know a step or a procedure incorrectly, oh they they'll oh sir that's not the way you do something like that. You know, they're not afraid at all to to do that and a lot of times in the jet community we try to get them out of the box because you get in a lot of situations where it's just not written in the book because you can find yourself in a situation where the book's not and we want them to not think that there's always a solution in a book to a problem and there's not you ever force them into a solution like i i can't remember what movie it was but they they're he basically fakes an engine failure by turning it oh no we always do yeah we we always force them into say there were always scenarios that i would do to 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 get them to not just want to pull the handle and eject and i've been in jets before where the jets the some of the jets you fly planes have crashed before and they've stitched them together and you're flying them again there's one jet i flew that would not fly straight and uh, because it had Seems been in it, because it had smashed, <laughs> and there there are some jets 
where, for instance, I'm flying with a student and we have all box in the plane. The oxygen makes it makes its own oxygen. And every time in this particular jet, you brought the throttle to idle at a high altitude, uh, oxygen warning light would come on. And according to NATOPS, the jet is down. You need to fly it back. It's jacked up. But I knew that the jet, you'd never, I'd never get to fly if, if I brought it back every time that O2 warning would come on. And so I go to idle. I'm up high. I want to get down low. I pull it to idle. The warning light comes on, and I just bump the power up a little bit to get the light off. And he's like, sir, we have to go back. NATOPS says... We have to go back, and I'm just like, we're fine, we're sir. That's against regulations, you know. We're fine. Why don't you put your finger in your nose when you say that? We're fine, sir, sir. And I've had people before, you know, we've been in a jet, and they wanted to pull the handle because, uh, you know, something happened where you would eject from it, but that was that particular jet, and it had that idiosyncrasy where it sounded like you were having a compressor stall on the engine was shitting itself, when actually it was just another crash jet that sounds crazy when you do something in a particular way. (laughs) (laughs) So I got a buddy, he works on A-10s, and his job is that the pilots take them out, fly it around, and then write down a list of all the issues that they had, and his job is to go figure out what's causing that issue. I mean, did you have to do that yourself? Well, yeah, a lot of times like the o2 sensor like hey jackass fix this well as the jets you know these jets are getting older and they get abused and a lot of times every time you fly you come back if you have gripes with the jet you write them down in a book and before you go flying you look through the book (laughs) and you see the things that were fixed and the things that are still outstanding you know and why you want to do that is if you know the jet prior to you had engine uh the engine stalled out and they did a bore scope and everything looks fine and we couldn't fun, we couldn't repeat the error well you want to be you want to pay attention to that when you're flying because you know you it may be and so you'll treat that jet a little bit differently you'll be a little bit softer on it when you're doing ACM or whatever um, but there were jets like we we could get a jet every weekend and I used to fly up here all the time and see see my friends and there was one time it was late in the evening I was supposed to go to Washington DC in a jet and um, I thought I was going to get the jet at noon. Well, it's five o'clock at night, and that's to get up to DC. That's like two trips, two legs. So I'd have to land somewhere, get fuel, go again. But they're like, "Yeah," and there was something important I had to do up there. And they're like, "Hey, we have this jet. The only thing about this jet is none of the lights work in the jet. You have no internal or external lights on this jet." And I'm like, oh, "I'll take it." <laughs> so I get up I get up into Washington DC it's like 10 11 o'clock at night pitch dark I've got my flashlight on the inside of the cockpit looking at my instruments because I have no internal lights but the funny thing is is they are calling out my aircraft to all of the commercial aircraft in the area and they're like we can't see him we can't see him like, Shit. and the ATC we the flight around and, and I'm like damn it I'm gonna get in trouble for this and I get clearance into um uh, the what's that big base? Uh, the Air Force Base in DC um, that the president's plane fly. Andrews. Yep, Andrews. So I get clearance to land from tower, switch up tower. I, I run that gauntlet where ATC is calling my plane out. No one can see me, and I land on the runway. And towers like, uh, and I'm I'm off the runway, uh, about to taxi back. And towers like, have you guys landed yet? Where are you guys? <laughs> and I go, uh, I, I just touched down, and all of a sudden my lights went out. <laughs> on my plane so you lied <laughs> yeah so that, that's an instance of like, had to, if I wanted to get somewhere and I, I had to take a jet that was 
And that a lot of times it, you would get a jet where you wouldn't normally fly it, but you're like, I really want to go flying. It's iffy. I'll keep an eye on it, I guess. And yeah, that happened all the time. Uh, reasons why I never want to be in a plane. And see, uh, okay, and there was a a lot of instances. So I ran a outline field to Kingsville, where. It was shut down at the end of the day, and security would go. And this was during the redux when we were having the budget issues. And for me to keep security, so we would use it in an outline field to do touch and goes on it. And there was a jet that was there. It's the end of the day. It's which a touch and go is this? Literally hit the wheels to the tarmac. So on the for the jets, we have a carrier deck drawn out on the runway, and you treat it like a carrier deck, and you just constantly do these carrier landings. They're called FCLPs. And so at this outline field, I we didn't have any money for me to keep security there, but all Navy jets are considered tactical. They're considered national tactical assets. So you have to have full security when a you know like Mo can't just jump over the fence and go take pictures of jets, <laughs> which he did. So the engine. So there's a plane there in the airfield that. Um, had a broken engine or whatever, but it could limp up in the air, and I'm like, damn it. So I snuck over to the airfield, got in the jet, started it up, and I'd, I only had to fly it 10 miles. Uh, flew it 10 miles back to the uh, to Kingsville when it should not have flown because it had caught fire earlier in the day. And But I had to get it out of there, you know? So it's like, yeah, I'm a commander, and we do stupid things, so... <laughs> I would never, we'd never have a student or a regular flight instructor do that. But right. My but life, I think, was less. Uh, you had a few flights under your belt at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we did a lot of stupid shit. But the, the I'll tell you, this is the last story. The one reason why I retired from the Navy, and I think you guys have heard this story. <clears throat> I was flying with an Indian student and that, that they put me with, and he was so frustrating because he couldn't speak English and he was terrible. And, uh,. From start to finish, I'm constantly trying to bat because you can torch a you can torch a jet just by starting it up wrong, and he had already he'd already burned an engine up and uh, just a bunch of stuff. But the foreign students are different because you got to get them through the flight syllabus. Mm-hmm. So this guy had me so flustered in the beginning that we get up in the air and uh, we're doing ACM air combat maneuvering or something like that. I can't remember exactly what we we're doing. He got the aircraft inverted and we got negative G's on. I forgot to strap myself into the aircraft. And so I found myself plastered up onto the canopy. <laughs> we're inverted and doing negative G's and, and he's on the and the aircraft's out of control. And if you go below ten thousand feet out of control, you're supposed to eject. And I'm like, this is how I'm dying. I'm gonna have an ejection seat go right through my back. I'm plastered up against the canopy. <laughs> and I've got the guy on the ICS going, so, so what do I do? What do, do, uh, do we eject? Do we get out? What do we do here? And I couldn't reach down. So the ICS is down on the throttle while I'm plastered up against the canopy. And somehow he got positive G's. He kicked the stick or something, got positive G's back down on the jet. And I fell head first down back into the, <laughs> back down into the, the hole of the seat and I got my hand up on the throttle and I said I have the jet and I flew it to I and I slapped it to idle which got enough load off the jet where I was able to to right myself back up and gain control of the aircraft but then uh, I was like Jesus. holy shit I almost died there and uh, so that was like a month or two before I retired I was like ah, it's 
when I do dumb crap like that, you know, they say there's old pilots and bull pilots, but there's no old bull pilots. And so I was like, when you start making mistakes like that, it's probably about time to... Uh, uncle with a pilot's license. He says the two words that are used most by a pilot are, oh, shit. Yeah. Well, that's... Yeah, when you when they run the crash... I've had a lot of oh, shit moments, but uh, that was definitely one of them. <laughs> and uh, that was probably one of the scarier ones. But that was the one where I was like, you know, it was time for me to probably go. See, I would have thought that seeing a missile coming at you would be scarier than that, but... No, nothing scarier than thinking that the dude's going to pull the ejection handle on you and you're not in your ejection seat. That's a pretty much, yeah, 100% death rate on that one. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and there's two big spikes. There's two big spikes on the top of that ejection seat, too. Because they're meant to break the canopy. Well, so in the well, what would have happened in that canopy, though? The ejection seat probably wouldn't have got me because you have debt cord in the canopy of the goshawk. So when you pull the ejection handle, the canopy shatters first. So I would have got the full impact of the canopy shattering in my face before the ejection seat hit me after that. So I would have got the double whammy. I probably would have survived the canopy uh, shattering. So that would have sucked. And then I would have got, I would have got freaking cut in half by my ejection seat. So that's such a challenger explosion shit. (laughs) (laughs) On that uh, positive note. <clears throat> anyone that's they're looking at going in the military they're looking at being a pilot what kind of advice would you offer them I mean it's got to be what you ha- have to do I've had students um, who really didn't want to be pilots and were either coerced um, I remember I had a I had a young black female that they gave me who was a pilot and um, she, she really wasn't that she wasn't good and the reason why she wasn't good is because she really didn't want to be a pilot because she was smart and a black female she was kind of coerced into that into that community and i saw that firsthand i mean you got it's something you have to want to do because it is so dangerous and it requires a lot of dedication to it and if your heart's not into it um you know you can be a commercial pilot or you can be a military pilot you have to recognize they're two completely different paths and different things to do um, for someone like me who didn't have any money, I couldn't have been a commercial pilot because you have to pay for that. Um, so being a military pilot was the only way that I could I could live that dream. And I wanted to be a military pilot. But um, if you're good, if you want to be a military pilot, it's a long and very very painful road. It's a very long road, and you have to be prepared to give up a solid two years of your life, your early twenties of your life. To being to not partying, to not doing anything but that. You literally do nothing but that. And for if there's anyone listening that is <clears throat> transitioning now or about to be transitioning out uh, from military to private sector, any any uh, uh, advice or yeah, you no, I mean throw their way. Yeah, a lot of people. You really have to fully fully understand what's available to you when you get out because it's not. And you think it's going to be an easy transition. It's not an easy transition. Uh, you need to take the advice of your family, and if you're not feeling well, you need to talk to your family and communicate with them and make sure that you see a healthcare provider if you start to spiral out of control. Because I see that happen too much where guys. Uh, just take drugs, drink, do stupid things to ruin their marriages. So you need to stay ahead of that really quickly because you think you're going to have control over that, but you're not going to. 
We have a uh, special guest that joined us a little late in the show, Brian and August. Do you guys have any questions for Gundy? I know, Brian, you grew up with Gundy, I'm sure. Sure. You've heard the stories before, but... So how many people do you think actually uh, were enlisted first and then ended up becoming a, a Navy jet pilot? Because I can't, I got to imagine that there were very, very few. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't answer that question. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were, there were some... <clears throat> I mean, there's a few people that become pilots, but um, kind of the way I did it, though, the, through the Naval Academy, there's... Well, I can tell you this. The day we dropped you off at the Greyhound station to put you on the bus for basic training, nobody ever thought that you would <laughs> mount to a hill of shit, so... <laughs> <laughs> Which was my point. As a young guy with no direction, no money, parents who really didn't care what I did... Um, uh, it was really my friends who kept my head in, like Brian, and I didn't know you guys at the time, but my close friends, the ones that we all get together with to this day, um, were, were the ones that kind of kept kept me on the straight and narrow, because I really didn't have a support other than my friends um, behind me back here. Um, it's, just, it's, a, it's a weird thing. I mean, for, for people who have no direction and don't know what they want to do with their lives, I highly recommend the military, too, over college for a lot of a lot of kids. I knew I wasn't ready for college, and I knew if I would have went to college with with my friends, I don't know. I don't know where I'd be. But I needed direction, and I needed discipline, and the military gave me discipline. I'm still crazy. I still do crazy stuff, and I make bad decisions, but... Um, I make a lot less bad decisions and do a lot less crazy stuff, I'm sure. I think that's part of being a male. There's yeah. a reason why women live longer. <laughs> so, I guess I'll ask you the question. The first first time I ever met you, I asked this question. And the answer is so simple. The first thing I ever asked you was, how do you land on an aircraft carrier when it's bobbing around in the ocean? Yeah, and it's really not as hard as it looks. Because if you think about it, the the, the carrier rotates four and aft of its CG, and they put the landing point basically at that pivot. And so when I first, my very first time that I trapped a goshawk on the Kennedy, it was pretty rough seas, but you not, you, you I could explain the ball and, and things like that, but the touchdown point for the aircraft really is not going up and down as bad as the fore and the aft of the ship. So it's really not that big of a deal. As soon as you explained that to me, it was so simple. It's just, you think this boat's just out there bobbing in the ocean. Right? Yeah. Right. Well, you aim for the center of the ship I'm used to, uh, on. you know, the biggest so, ship, or big ship, biggest boat I've ever been on, aside from a cruise liner, was a 22-foot open bow. I, well, I sw- We went whale watching on a 40-footer, but still... That's going to have a lot more pitch than well, a Well, I'll tell you what, you when you're landing on a carrier, though, a carrier is as big as it looks when you're on the dock looking at it. When you're trying to land on it, that carrier does not look very big. <laughs> <laughs> it's not big. It doesn't look very big. So I've seen the video of, uh, of Gundy's first carrier landing. And it's it's from the cockpit, kind of, or wherever the, wherever the camera's mounted in the plane. In the front of the plane, yeah. yeah and, he, and he's like, yeah, you know. We're watching it. And it's just amazing, it, and it actually you go down a lot slower than than you would imagine, you know. And then he he gets down and he he gets hooked and he's he goes, <gasps> <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I Darth Vadered there at the end. <laughs> so what it is, yeah, well, in, in the in the jet, the the radio is a clicker on the throttle, 
And so whenever you touch it on the carrier, the first thing you're taught to do is to go full throttle. Um, and you have speed brakes that you push in. Um, I went full throttle and instead of keying my speed brakes, I key the mic and I'm in the, I'm in the wires, my first, my first trap and I'm in the wires and I'm going <laughs> and the, the air boss who controls the flight deck is like scooter. That was my call sign in the Navy with scooter. They're like, scooter, we got you. We got you. Come back on the throttle. You're all right. You can hear him on the radio. We got you. We got you. Throttle back, scooter. Throttle back. And I'm well, just and like, they want you to throttle in case you miss the cable and you can yeah. take off again. Yeah, so. so that's a major thing. Yeah. You go to the carrier. They weed those guys out right away. If you if you hit the down on the deck and you don't go full throttle, that's a, called a cut pass. You're may immediately kicked off the carrier for that. So. That's ingrained on you every single time because if you touch down on the carrier and you do a hook skip or you miss the wire and you didn't come to full throttle right away, you're going to go off the lip and go into the water. So you only have how many hundred feet on a carrier to land on? Uh, it's not. It's not far. I, I can't remember. The, uh, I just remember maybe, watching uh, do little raiders as a kid and they're learning how to take a B B was it B thirty four B fifty two twenty four twenty four the do letter yeah the do yeah. little ones yeah. I, I can't remember what those are but um. But again, you got to remember those guys, their takeoffs and their their landings are much slower. I mean, we're talking 125 knots, and uh, and it's it comes fast, and it comes really fast. But it's fun. I mean, that was the most fun I ever had when I went out to the carrier and did landings. It was so much fun. Well, thanks again, Scott. Right. Really appreciate you coming down on the show. And like I said. I, I know you flew all the way here from Texas just for the podcast. Nothing to do with the cabin trip that we're doing right now. But uh, until next time, folks, we will catch you later. All right, man. Thank you. Holy.